how many of you would like to have confidence of God's direction in your life? Anyone? Anyone would like to? Anybody facing some uncertainty that you would like some clarity for? We'd like to just know that you could hear from God and have the confidence that he is speaking to you. That's, that's pretty much all of us, right? And uh, that's what we are going to be talking about today as we continue the Paradigm Series, Reading and Understanding the Bible. This is part five, but we're going to handle the second pillar of the, uh, of the paradigm that we've been talking about. The message is called God at Work. And when you have confidence that God is at work and that he is leading and guiding you, then that makes it a lot easier. And often, I'm thankful to say that I have had that confidence when making decisions or facing uh, uh, some kind of choice. However, that isn't always the case. And yesterday, my uh, son was over and the family was sitting around and we were talking about one of those decisions. Right after Sue Ellen and I got married and we're starting our family, we kind of bounced around to a couple of different places to live. In fact, I counted it up and in the first 10 years of our marriage, we lived in 11 different places. I don't recommend it. And in fact, uh, when I think about moving, uh, you know, if you ever are moving and you're asking for help, I, I, I almost always try to help organize something, but if I show up and actually carry something around, that's, you know I love you because I have like PSTD or whatever it's called for moving. I just do not like to move because we move so much. Well, uh, we were... Uh, in a place that we had to move out of and we were looking for the next place. And my prayer was, God, I just want you to be my real estate agent, right? I, I want you to lead and guide this whole process. And uh, so we started looking. And it was one of those weird things where we were faced with a couple of different options. We had good options, but I just didn't get a sense that yes, God was really in this, and I could have complete confidence in this. And so I like to have that before making a big decision like purchasing your first piece of real estate. But however, I just didn't have it. And it was a particular way that God led and spoke to me and gave me the confidence that I needed that I will tell you about as we wrap up today's message. So the question that we're asking is really this. It's how can I be sure that God is in what I am doing, right? Uh, when you are making big decisions, purchasing real estate, making career decisions, deciding where you're going to live, who you're gonna marry, all those kinds of big life decisions, and even the small day-to-day -day decisions, it's nice to know, it's nice to have confidence that God is in the midst of what you're doing. So the question becomes, how do you get that confidence? And how do you get the confidence that what you are sensing and the, what you are picking up on as you pursue your relationship with your heavenly father is actually what he wants to tell you? And uh, this actually points out one of the dangers that people encounter when reading and trying to understand the Bible. And it's one that we talked about in the first message of this series when we talked about what the Bible is not. And one of the things that we said was that the Bible is not a grab bag for devotionals. And um, I can illustrate that humorously by 
uh, you know, we encourage life journaling, right? So let's say on Monday, I'm reading the Bible and I run across this passage in Matthew 26, 16 that says that Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. And then Tuesday, as I'm doing my life journaling, I read Luke 10, 37, where Jesus says, yes, now go and do the same. And then on Wednesday, I do my life journaling and I encounter John 13, 27 that says, what you are about to do, do quickly. Now, if I tried to tie all of those things together, I could get into a problem because the Bible is not a devotional grab bag. And that's what this pillar of our paradigm prevents us falling prey to. I've mentioned that this was inspired by the podcast series from the Bible Project on their paradigm. I've kind of reworked it a little bit, but this is the second pillar as they describe it, and that is that the Bible is unified literature. It's unified literature. When I was going to school to prepare for ministry, uh, they were talking a lot about how you know, the different sources and what's called a historical critical perspective on the Bible, where you try to pick apart and figure out, well, well, this came from here and this came from here and this was compiled here and somebody else put that together here and try to kind of deconstruct it in order to make sense of it. But the Bible is presented to us as a unit, as a whole, and that's on purpose And that's actually the best way to understand it. And that's what they mean by saying that the Bible is unified literature. They go on to say, although the Bible has many authors, literary styles, and themes, it tells one story about God's plan to rescue humanity and make them his partners in ruling the world. And understanding that the Bible is unified literature, that it was pulled together purposefully and I believe sovereignly into the form that we have now can give us confidence as we read the Bible and understand the Bible. And I think that will translate into confidence in your walk with the Lord and your ability to discern God's will. So today we are talking about confidence and we've already said the big umbrella paradigm of the uh, the Bible project puts it as that the Bible is a unified story that leads people to Jesus. I've said the point of the Bible is to point us to Jesus. And that reminds me that the verse that I'm encouraging all of us to memorize over the course of this series is John 5.39. You search the scriptures because they, you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Jesus is saying the point of the Bible is to point people to himself. Last week, we talked about the first pillar, and that is that the Bible is both human and divine. The Bible is both human and divine, that God was in the midst of it. He inspired it. He preserved it. He was active at every phase of its authorship, but he uses people. And so the Bible is both human and divine. We saw this summed up in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, where Peter says the prophets, though human, spoke from God. So you see those two elements at play there, that God is speaking, but he's doing so through humans, these prophets that spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
today, I'm going to rework that, that the Bible is unified literature, and here's how I'm going to say it, and this will be the bottom line for today. Second pillar, what the Bible teaches is true, is true. What the Bible teaches is true, is true. Now, I first encountered this uh, in a church's statement of faith, and it was so simple and so profound, I said, I've got to copy that. I've got to, I've got to steal that because it's so good. What the Bible teaches is true, is true. And let me unpack that a little bit for you because it prevents so many issues. Um, you may have encountered or seen somebody that says, well, you know, you can't accept the Bible's teaching on this because the Bible says this, but it also says this. And you want to talk about biblical marriage? Well, what's, what's, what does that mean? You've got, you've got polygamy. You've got adultery. You've got uh, all kinds of different things going on it, it, it described in the Bible. You, they, you've got this rule that doesn't make sense and this rule that you follow and this rule that you don't follow. And just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's true. That's people's perspective. And, and they're, they're looking and picking apart those pieces. It's the same thing that I was talking about with the historical critical methods. Take it apart and then see how it stands on its own. But the way that you do the Bible is you look at it as a whole in its what's called canonical context. And then you have to ask, okay, well, just because we see David, who's described as a man after God's own heart, the King David, and then you see him committing adultery and committing murder to cover up the adultery, and it breaks our brain. But just because the Bible is describing something, even by somebody who would be otherwise considered a hero of the faith, does not mean that the Bible is teaching that, approving that. In fact, one of the things that's, that's so interesting about the Bible is there's so much, there, there's a lot of sparseness to the narrative. It doesn't tell you a lot about what people are thinking, and it doesn't say, it doesn't tell you often how to think about what people are doing in the story. And that's related to another pillar that we'll get to later, that the Bible is meditative literature. It, you're supposed to turn it over in your mind. You're supposed to think about it and think deeply about it and draw out the conclusions rather than it being spoon-fed to you. And so what this does is helps you to put it all in context. And it also helps you when you're talking about the Bible to people who don't have the same convictions about the Bible that you do because they're going to hear bits and pieces and then assume that just because it says something in the Scripture and just because a person does something in the Scripture that that is something that is approved of and you have to pull back and say, yes, there are examples where God tells the, the ancient Israelites to go in and wipe out an entire people. That's something that's hard to deal with for us as believers. But does the Bible teach go out and commit genocide? Does it say, yeah, that's a great thing, great idea, go do? No, of course not, because that's not what the Bible teaches. It may describe it, it may talk about it, 
and maybe even people who would otherwise be considered heroic might do it, but it's not teaching it. This is also, as an aside, an important thing to remember as you're consuming any kind of media, not just the scriptures, because every movie, every TV series, every newspaper article is teaching something. It's teaching something, and we need to be discerning. So what the Bible teaches is true is true, and the challenge, the way that we'll encourage you to apply this is to get the counsel of scripture to consider the whole counsel of Scripture. If you want to get the counsel of Scripture, if you want to know what God thinks of something, then it's important to look at it in the entire context, the whole counsel of Scripture. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit. How do we get that? And then apply it in a specific way when it comes to this passage that we're looking at today, which is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. And if you'd like to follow along, and if not, you can just listen and read along with me. This is a, a little bit longer passage, and I'm only going to focus in the end on this, the last part, but it's good context. This is from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, beginning at the beginning of the second chapter. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender or compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of yourselves as better than yourselves. Don't look only for your own interest, look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Verse 6, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appear, appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest place of honor, to the place of highest honor, and gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God, listen to this, verse 13, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would speak to each one of us. I believe that you inspired it, you preserved it, you authored it, and you are now in, uh, applying it to our hearts and to our lives. Lord, give us the humility to hear from you. Give us the willingness to obey you and give us clarity, insight, and understanding 
so that we know what to do. And Lord, I pray that you would build our confidence in our ability to hear from you because your word says that we can hear from you and give us confidence in your word that is rooted in your power and your initiative. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, as I already mentioned earlier, on-site and online are out of sync this week, but this message will be available on demand for anybody that is missed, has missed or is out of town, so you can let people know that. And everything that we do is designed to inspire and equip people to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. I am absolutely convinced that your life will be better if you follow Jesus, or the way that we often put it, following Jesus makes life better and makes you better at life and brings glory to God in the process. And I've already mentioned that uh, the way to let us know who you are, we'd love to be able to welcome you personally and stay in touch with you. In this series called Paradigm, our focus is helping you to read and understand the Bible. And today, we're saying that the Bible, what the Bible teaches is true, is true. So the thing about it being unified literature is that not only did God inspire the words as they were written down, but that he sovereignly oversaw the entire process. You see, the Bible as we know it didn't come together until hundreds of years after the church started. The Bible as the disciples knew it, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, would have come together only within several hundred years of Jesus' birth. So, there's a process that happened. And just very briefly, all of these writings were out there. The, the people were conquered, exiled, returned to the land, brought these documents with them, and then they began to assemble and arrange them and produce the scriptures that we have today. So when you're thinking about what the Bible teaches, it's good to acknowledge and represent that uh, acknowledge and understand that the Bible and the whole process that produced it is God-inspired. When in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, writing to his apprentice, says that all Scripture is God-breathed, I think that that includes that whole... What he's saying is what we received in the form that we received is Scripture... It is God-breathed. And the way that they got that scripture in the form that they received it was a process of the people's experience with God. They're recording it. They're interpreting it and then compiling that record of their experience. So why does that matter to us? It helps us because when we read the scriptures, we should read it with that understanding and recognize that the human authors, although human, were being carried along by the Holy Spirit and the way that they arranged it, their words, their context, their culture, their history, all of that informed what was going on. And so we should take that 
into consideration. That's why you can't just grab bag verses out of the air and get a coherent God-inspired message. So when the when the Apostle Paul and others affirm that Scripture is God-breathed, I include that whole process in there, and that means when we read, we take it seriously. We study. We learn. We learn the languages. We do a little bit of research. We understand the culture so that when we hear what they are saying, we have greater insight into it. Remember last week when I told you that the Bible is both human and divine, I said when you acknowledge and embrace both of those, you will have greater understanding and appreciation for each side of the equation. That's what we're working out here. So that's what the Apostle Paul is saying, that the whole process is inspired, that all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? What's the end result? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When you go into a situation where you're thoroughly equipped, you've been trained, you're experienced, you know what's going on, you have confidence you go into a, a situation where you don't have the right tools or you've never faced that situation before. You don't understand what's going on. You lack confidence. We want you to have confidence that the scriptures are God-inspired and when you receive them as such, when you learn from them, you will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what's the second pillar? It is that the what the Bible teaches is true is true. Now, how does God speak? And we can see this in this process that gave us the scriptures, that God speaks through his word, his spirit, and his people. You may have heard me say this before. It's one that's worth rem remembering and worth memorizing. How does God speak? How can you discern God's will? It's through his word, his spirit, and his people. So, I'll just give you a little bit of uh, background to this. This is one example. And here's how uh, sometimes I model for you, whether I point it out to you or not, how to read the scripture and how to interpret the scripture. I throw up illustrative verses, but they are verses that illustrate what the Bible as a whole is teaching. I started out with that illustration about Judas by pulling out verses that do not illustrate what the Bible is teaching. So this is a good example of that. This isn't the only place that you will find these principles, but they are, they are uh, little demonstrations of this principle that you will find. This is Jesus, for example, talking in John 14, 6. It says, he says, I will talk to the Father and he'll provide for you another friend so that you will always have someone with you. And that's from the message translation. What's going on here? Jesus is preparing his disciples. What am I doing for you right now? I'm providing context. I'm telling you who is talking. I'm telling you the setting of this. I'm indicating how or why John would have included this in the scriptures. So, so Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he goes to the cross and he goes away. He's also, by writing this down, speaking to the people who never met Jesus and how, how are they going to be led by Jesus? How are they going to have confidence that they know what to do? Jesus is saying, I'm going to send somebody, I'm going to talk to the Father and he's going to send somebody, a friend that will always be with you. 
Uh, and who is he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. How does God lead us? Through his word, his spirit, and his people. All scripture is God-breathed. That's his word. His Holy Spirit, God sends his Holy Spirit to live and reside in each one of us as followers of Jesus. And what does he do? He leads us into all truth. You have, can have confidence as you walk with Jesus, that he is going to lead you and guide you because that's what he promised and he delivered on that promise in the person of the Holy Spirit. Then how does he guide through his people? Think about this for just a second. Uh, now we have God's word, which was compiled and, and put together by God's people with God sovereignly working in the process. And now you get to be a part of the family of God that includes other people who have God's word, who also, by the way, have God's Holy Spirit living and residing in them. And you can talk through things with people. You can get counsel. You can get insight. You can benefit from their understanding and their experience. Here is a verse that illustrates this principle that, again, is taught throughout the entire scriptures. I'll pick from the Hebrew scriptures today, Proverbs 15, 22, plans go wrong for lack of advice, but many advisors bring success. Plans go wrong for lack of advice, but many advisors bring success. So how does God lead you? How can you have confidence that you're being led? Well, what the Bible teaches is true is true, so you find it in the Bible, and then who wrote the Bible, authored it, guided the whole process, lives within you now as a follower of Jesus, God's Holy Spirit. And who can you talk to about all this stuff? Other people who have the Holy Spirit in the family of God, the people of God. So that helps you, keeps you from going off track and figuring out what the Bible actually teaches because what the Bible teaches is true, is true. And then lastly, this whole principle, this pillar, points out that God works in and through people. And I think this is how this principle that we apply to the scriptures can help give us confidence as we listen to and hear from God as well. That throughout the scriptures and the examples that are in the scriptures, but also the process of how we got the scriptures demonstrates this truth that God works in and through people. And we've all already pointed out how, in previous weeks how, uh, especially with the human and divine elements, that the, the, the scriptures mirror Jesus being as well. And that's what we see in this passage in Philippians that I read through with you as well. It says, though, talking about Jesus, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. This whole passage, the pastoral point that Paul is making, there's division within the church, and he's saying, look, if you have any compassion, if you have any participation in the Holy Spirit, let's get along with one another. And what's keeping you from getting along with one another? It's your own pride. And so let's look at Jesus' example. Was he prideful? No, if anybody had a reason to be prideful, it would be Jesus, though he was God, right? 
But what did he do instead of asserting his privileges and his place? He humbled himself, even humbling himself to the point of death on a cross, ultimate humiliation in the eyes of the world. So, so that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, there was a divine element to Jesus, but he became human and he humbled himself. And that's an example for you to follow. If you have God's Holy Spirit living inside of you, you're going to mirror the character of Christ more and more and pastoral concern, and therefore you're going to get along well because you won't be prideful. You will have humility as Christ, as Christ uh, showed. Then in the conclusion of this, he again, I mean, we've seen divine and human elements in the scriptures. We see the divine and human elements combined 100% human, 100% divine in Jesus. And now he's saying, and by the way, that's going to be your experience as you walk with Christ as well. What does he say towards the end in verse 12? Be energetic in your life of salvation. The more traditional translation of that is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I picked a different translation because sometimes that can confuse people. It's like, wait, I thought, I thought salvation was a gift. I thought it was all by grace. And now it's saying, work it out. Well, what he's saying is God has given you something as a gift, but you, there's a human element of it as well. Let, let that be worked out in your life. Live that out. You know, it, God, God has included you in his family. You didn't do anything to earn it. That should, that should foster humility in you, not pride. Jesus had every reason to be proud, you could say, but he was humble. So now, since God has put that humility in you, since that reflects the character of Jesus, then work that out. Let that out in your interactions with one another. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. And here's those two elements again in verse 13. For God is working in you. God works in and through people. God is working in you, giving you the desire, the want to, and the power, the can do, to, plead, to do what pleases him. Wow, what a promise. That should give us great confidence because that's saying uh, as broken and as needy as I am, God in his grace is doing something in me. I wanted the wrong things. I wanted destructive things. But now God is displacing those desires with what he wants. And there were some times where I really wanted to do the right thing. And I really, I saw the path that I was going down and I knew that, but I just didn't feel like I could change. I didn't have the power. But now God's not only giving me the desire, but he's giving me the power as well. And you can walk forward in that confidence that God is aligning your heart and your desires with his heart and his desires. And not, not in a way that results in a cruel joke. I want it, but I can never get it. I can never attain it. But he's giving you the desire. And he says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to empower you. 
I'm going to give you everything you need, not just to want it, but to do it. For God is at work in you, giving you the power, the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So uh, I told you at the beginning how uh, I didn't have confidence in the decision we were making about where to live and what to buy and all that kind of thing. And I was really f- kind of frustrated because I, I had prayed, you know, God, be my real estate agent, you know, help me out here. And, and so often when I would be making decisions, I would have great confidence and just feel affirmed in what I was doing. And I just didn't have that. So reading through the scriptures came across a, a verse in Romans chapter eight that has stuck with me all these many years and, and served me well through those years. I was reading Romans chapter eight and the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Rome, he says, for those that are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Now, in the context, if I remember, what, he, what he's talking about is, look, you know, if, you're, if you have the God's Holy Spirit, and then you're going to have the desire and the power to do what is right, that, that's going to flow through you. You're going to work out your salvation. It's, you're you're going to be energetic in that. And so, if you don't see that, then that should probably cause you to think about, oh, what's going on here? You know, do I have God's spirit? Because what he's, then he concludes like this, for those that are led by the spirit of God, if, if your actions are flowing out of the power and desires that the Holy Spirit gives you, then that should affirm that you are also the children of God. But I think that you could make application to flip it around as well. If you're a child of God, then you're going to be led by the Spirit of God as well. If God's Holy Spirit is living and residing in you, then he's going to lead you, he's going to guide you, he's going to direct you. And I took great comfort from this in the midst of my uncertainty about that decision because it does not say that if you're a child of God, you're going to have absolute confidence 100% all the time that God is doing this and you should make this decision. Is that what it says? No. It says that the children of God are led by the Spirit of God. Those that are led by the Spirit are the children of God. Does it say you'll never have any doubts about the decision that you're making? No. But what it says is, look, if you belong to God, he's got your back. And he's, he's, he's given you his Holy Spirit. He's going to lead you and guide you. And so you can walk forward in that confidence. So we made the decision about the property that we that we uh, bought, but what did I do? I was seeking God's direction by reading his word. I was listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit. No doubt Sue Ellen and I had many conversations, and we might have discussed it with others as well. God's people were involved in that process. And so God leads you as one of his dearly loved children by his word, his spirit, and his people. And you can have that confidence. That's what we're talking about today. And you can have the confidence that looking at the scriptures as a whole and taking it into context of all those things, God's Holy Spirit speaking in your heart, but also the objective uh, analysis and input from others, but you can have confidence that what the Bible teaches is true as true. Look at it as the whole. Get the whole counsel of God. So that's the application step 
to get the, whole, get the counsel of Scripture, you consider the whole counsel of Scripture. And in your growth guide, you'll also see that I kind of teased that out a little bit under the challenge section. So how can you do that? Well, number one, you need to make sure that you know where you stand with the author of Scripture. Because the Holy Spirit lives and resides in people who belong to Jesus. If you don't know where you stand with Jesus, then I would encourage you to say yes to Jesus. What are you saying yes to? You're saying yes to his forgiveness, that what he did on the cross counts for me. You're saying yes to his lordship, that he's the one who gets to call the shots. He's the boss in my life. My allegiance is to him. When that happens, you cross the line of faith and you have God's Holy Spirit. And then to get the whole counsel of God by daily reading and responding to God's word. I'll talk more about this in coming weeks, but you can get kind of a, a Cliff Notes version of it at cornerstonenh.org slash life journaling. And then lastly, commit to a home church. If you're going to get the benefit of the people of God, then you have to know some people of God. You have to be interacting with some people of God. You have to have relationships with some people of God. So... What the Bible teaches is true, is true. So to get the counsel of Scripture, get the whole counsel of Scripture. And remember that the whole counsel of Scripture and all that God is doing is designed to point you to Jesus, the one who provides all of these things, the one who wants to lead you and guide you. And that's what communion does for us as well, is it points us to Jesus and the salvation that we have in him. So go ahead and grab the elements of communion. We start with the bread, remembering on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. What was he doing? He was, he was describing what theologians call the substitutionary atonement, that he was going to go to the cross and die a death that we deserved so that we could be extended forgiveness, grace, and life that we could never earn. And that happens through Jesus. The point of the scriptures is to point us to Jesus, and Jesus instituted communion to remind us of the, the basis, the foundation of our salvation is not something that we do, but what Christ has already done. So he took the bread. After he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. He gave thanks. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What was the old covenant? It was the system of sacrifices, the sacrifices that were happening at that very time in that very place in Jerusalem as they were celebrating Passover. And then I love in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, it says that the, the, the blood is, is evidence. What was, they, they used to prescribe that the blood from the sacrifices would be sprinkled on the altar might sound kind of gross to our modern ears, but what was it doing? When you saw the blood, you knew that the sacrifice had been offered. You knew that the debt had been paid. And so Jesus said, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, when you see this blood, you are reminded that the sacrifice has been offered and your debt has been paid. So he took the cup, he gave thanks, said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in wrapping up the instructions, the Apostle Paul says, And as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that word proclaim is the same word that is used for preach in other parts of the scripture, kerygma. What he's saying is, you have just done a play of the gospel. My body broken for you, my blood spilled for you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you. Thank you for providing Jesus, for sending Jesus, for pointing us to Jesus in the scriptures, by your Holy Spirit, in the celebration of communion. Lord, I pray that you would give us confidence rooted in Jesus and what he has done, that we are forgiven that when we say yes to you, we belong to you. I thank you, Lord, that you give us your Holy Spirit to help us to understand the scripture, to lead us into all truth. And I thank you for these, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the people of God. I pray that as we go forward, that you will give us confidence, insight, direction, and that because of what we've talked about today, because of the way that you have moved and the way that you have spoken, that there will be stories to tell in the coming week. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. amen.